Welcome to the Leading Voices with ULI, a podcast of the Urban Land Institute. In this podcast series, we interview city builders who use innovative approaches to create healthier, more economically vibrant communities with character and a high quality of life. These leaders provide inspiration to those of us looking to play a role in building better cities. I recently had the opportunity to speak with Jonathan Rose, who's the president and CEO of the Jonathan Rose Companies, a national real estate development, investment, and consulting firm based in New York. Jonathan's firm is a for-profit company with a mission, which he will talk about on the podcast. He's also a longtime trustee of the Enterprise Community Partners and the Brooklyn Academy of Music. He's the author of the recently published book, The Well-Tempered City. He and his wife co-founded the Garrison Institute and currently sits on its board. The Garrison Institute combines contemplation and meditation with addressing major social questions. He's also been a client of Terra Search Partners, so Jonathan and I have enjoyed a fruitful collaboration. Jonathan is a deep and holistic thinker and businessman, qualities which are especially meaningful in these times of political volatility. His thoughtfulness and commitment to using our discipline as real estate professionals to create communities of opportunity will be evident by our wide-ranging conversation. I hope that you will enjoy. Jonathan, we've, we've known each other for a few years, and I got to say that you're one of the most interesting and broad-reaching people I know in the real estate business, so it might be hard to fit this discussion into a 40-minute podcast, but Let's give it a try. I want to hit all the high points in the conversation so we can't dig too deeply on any. But when I think of you, here's some headlines. Uh, son of a famous real estate, New York real estate developer. You formed your own business to do mission-oriented development outside of the family real estate company. You're a musician and a music producer. You're a long-term leader of the Enterprise Foundation. You're a founder of the Garrison Institute, and you just wrote a book called The Well-Tempered City. So that's a lot. I'm probably missing some, I know I'm missing some big headlines, but hopefully we could chat about each of those topics through our conversation. I look forward to it. And maybe start at the beginning and we can go from there. Your grandfather, Samuel, and your uncle David started Rose Associates in 1928, and your father was in the family business and you started there, but left to form your own company. So Take it from there and give us some perspective on your career, how you got started. So I grew up in a real estate development family. My uh, grandfather and great uncle Dave, who were very, very close brothers and partners, um, were immigrants. And like many uh, immigrants to New York, uh, started out poor and did all kinds of jobs and, and fell in love with real estate and, and uh created a small company that over time grew to be a larger company, a company focused particularly in doing multifamily in New York City. And then my father, Frederick Rose, and uncle Dan Rose, who created the Rose Center for Mayors at uh, ULI, has been a very active ULI member, and my uncle Elihu joined as the next generation, and I was the first of the next generation. So I grew up in a family real estate business. I would go visit construction jobs with my father on weekends and visit leasing offices when projects were finished and lay on the floor in the living room with my father as he would uh, nights go over plans with a red pencil and mark them up. I learned an enormous amount about the business from him. 
but even as a small child, I had a great passion for both the environment and for communities, for city building, and particularly for affordable housing. And so I remember in the early 1960s, our family was completing uh, some uh, what are called Michelamas, the New York City Affordable Housing Program, um, develop, a series of developments. There's one that I had literally followed from the very beginning of excavation to the completion called Evergreen Gardens. And at the same time, the family had just completed its first major Park Avenue office building, 280 Park, which was the Bankers Trust World Headquarters. And uh, there were enormous number of celebrations for 280 Park Avenue, a big achievement for the family and for the city. It was just the beginning of the corporatization of Park Avenue. I created my own celebration for Evergreen Gardens. That affordable housing project in the Bronx was the one that I felt inspired me. I entered the family business in 1976 and learned the trade of development at the same time my father was the president of the Federation of Jewish Philanthropies. And he said, pick one of the Federation agencies in a poor community and join its board and act as a volunteer and get involved. And so I started working. I was living in the edge of Soho, uh, which back then was still in transition from manufacturing to arts district. And I picked the Education Alliance, which is in Lower East Side. Lower East Side at that time was a very poor and struggling neighborhood, high crime rate, high drug use. The Alliance was a 100-year-old Jewish settlement house that had an enormous number of extraordinary programs for drug treatment and homeless housing and people, families with special needs and an arts program and parenting classes. And they had created one of the very first Head Start programs in America. And I dove into it and learned a huge amount of as uh, the head of the building committee, but a very hands-on head on how to finance and build all these community social services. I reached a point in my life where I really felt that I wanted to put my for-profit life together and my not-for-profit life. And so in 1989, I left uh, my family's business on very amicable terms and started my own company as a for-profit mission-based company with the goal of repairing the fabric of communities, the goal of proving that we could create a for-profit model that um, that provided affordable housing, green building, social services, schools, all the elements of what it takes to repair the fabric of a community that I'd learned about at the Educational Alliance. So let's talk about your business. So how does your business fit into that? And you've had the business since 1989. So you have a long track record in the business. Talk a little bit about the place that you attack this. So I started the business in 1989 with just my secretary who came with me from Rose Associates and uh, has been with me ever since. Is that Vivian? And that's Vivian, yes. So Congratulations. For, for a long time. <laughs> and I would say for the first uh, 11 years, so 1989 to 2001, uh, which I'll call phase one of the company, I thought that my job was to be the best project manager in the world and to create amazing models of transformation. And so we did. Uh, we One of my first large projects was something called the Denver Dry Goods Building in downtown Denver, which modeled how could you create mixed-use, mixed-income, green, transit-oriented development, and it helped bring back the city and became a national model for how you did urban revitalization. Uh, we built the first homeless housing for people with AIDS that was green, recognizing that AIDS 
such an immune deficiency disease needed to be treated in non-toxic environments. They did a whole bunch. Uh, the first newly built Artists Live Work Studios in Santa Fe, right, in the nation, actually, after World War II. We did a whole bunch of interesting firsts. And uh, and I also really was a the company led in the development of uh, green affordable housing. This is before the LEED program or the Enterprise Green Community Program. And since none of the funders of affordable housing were willing to spend one penny more to make our buildings green, we had to learn how to become green uh, without spending any more money. And it was a very, very good discipline. In 2001, in the summer of 2001, I recognized that although I'd built a great number of projects, I'd not built a company. And I had about seven employees, and we were doing project by project. and that I had to, if I could increase the scale of my impact and also make the company more sustainable, we had to move uh, beyond just being a pro from project to project. And so I moved from being, in essence, a great project manager to having to learn how to be a company grower, which is an entirely different skill set. Absolutely true. So there are a couple of things I had to attack. I had to attack uh, an organizational structure and hiring people to fill that out. I had to also figure out how to raise more funds because uh, as we grew in scale, we needed resources that outstripped the family and friends network that I'd been using until that time. In 2005, we launched our first investment fund. We're now on our sixth fund. Um, to, and we built an amazing organization. Um, so in growing the company, I had to grow our systems. I had to grow our ability to attract uh, equity and debt and uh, and grow our human resources. And in weaving those all together, we've created a really extraordinary company that is, is working at a much larger scale and is much more effective at carrying out its mission. And in that, is there a phase three or that was the second phase? So the phase three begins now. It begins in 2017 where we now have a base of, of 15,000 affordable housing units. And between our development efforts and our acquisition efforts, uh, that will grow by probably three to 5,000 units a year. Interestingly, our acquisition efforts are now about 10 times as large in volume as our development efforts. First of all, it's easier to buy existing things than to build new. But also we recognize that our impact can be a lot greater if we are in more cities and if we are um, reaching a larger number of people. One of the things I found fascinating over the past maybe year or two years is that housing seems to be now in the national consciousness. Two, three, four years ago, even after the global financial crisis where housing was a leader of the problem in some ways, it seemed to be not a topic, but now the number of topics, particularly around affordability, and some popular books and the number of articles in the Times and the Journal, it seems to be a parade of consciousness around an issue that housing affordability really matters. Do you think the conversation and the dialogue has changed? It has, and this is so fantastic. I mean, I've been in the affordable housing world since the 1970s. If you ever made a list of what was most important to uh, Americans or residents of a city, Two issues. The environment was fairly low on the list or medium and housing wasn't, you may not even be on the list. Never, it, just right. a, it just wasn't a thought. And all of a sudden, people have woken up and realized how important it is. I think Matt Desson's book, uh, Evicted, really helped. But 
uh, I actually think the financial crisis, and I'm really sorry we went through it, but um, also helped make this issue uh, very visible. And but we also have growing homelessness. Uh, I think the uh, the fact that 20 million American families are now spending more than 50 percent of their income on housing, and that number is rapidly rising, particularly in thriving areas such as um, uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco and New York and, and et cetera, um, has really put it on the map. And I'm glad that the housing issues are on the map. And um, my sense is that as the new administration contends with all of the issues that um, it needs to, that, that it will find that housing will be a core one. Through the conversation, you've talked about housing and your work and a lot of holistic things, a lot of interdisciplinary and holistic things. I read your book. Uh, it was a wonderful book. I have to admit, at first, I found it almost overwhelming in terms of the history and the detail. And then I realized that you needed all that history and all the detail on the range of topics because they all matter and they all exist together. And it came right. together in the book for me. And I'll just read a passage from a section you had called Entwinement. It said, to truly succeed, cities need to integrate two worldviews. The first is a systems view, an understanding that nature is deeply interdependent. The second is the evolutionary fitness of altruism. Cities can heal their whole only if they heal all their parts. This understanding of the interdependence of all living systems, human and natural, is inherent in all religions and science. It's the basis of morality and spirituality. It opens the pathway through the megatrends. So I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about your book and maybe about religion as well, because you're a Jew and a Buddhist, and these things all fit together in a pretty big way. So any comments to that? Um, not really. Well, first, the, thank you for reading that paragraph. Uh, it... Uh, it reflects, it's really kind of the essence of what I was trying to say in the book. One of the conclusions that I've come to is that uh, we we know many of the answers that we need to create better cities and better communities, help lift people out of poverty, equalize opportunity, help save the environment. The, the issue is not uh, of course, there's always new things to learn, and we don't know all the answers, uh, particularly on the environmental challenges. But the, at the core is the issue of human behavior. And there's another uh, piece of interesting research in the book that comes out of the Brookings Institute, which showed that um, when people have a negative view about their future, a negative view of opportunity, and a negative view of their fellow human beings, in effect, they are living in a low trust environment. That those psychological conditions actually propagate uh, negative outcomes. They are associated with declining school districts and worse healthcare systems and the environment declining and less job opportunity. That the very nature of our collective attitudes creates the field of potential and it either increases it or decreases it. And so part of the goal of my book was to say, if we really believe that we can be transformational, the book talks about a phenomenon uh, that a 
um, sociologist named Robert Sampson discovered in Chicago called collective efficacy. When we believe that acting together, we can make a difference for good. And when we do act together, making a difference for good, that actually has a very positive and generative feedback effort, feedback result. One of the strengths of religions, and religions are in decline in America and throughout the world, is that uh, in the best, and religions have negative parts too, but the best parts of religions preach the idea that we are all in life together, that life has a unifying force between life, in life, and that when we permeate everything that we do with goodness, with compassion, with compare, with care for others, we make the world a better place. And that I deeply believe. And I think the science is now showing that when we have this shared capacity, uh, and compassion, when we recognize, so I created a, a phrase called entwinement. Um, yes. And I created it really as a scientifically neutral phrase rather than picking on the language of any one religion, but all religions have this language. But when we recognize that we are magnificently interdependent, and there's a fantastic concept in physics called in entanglement, which talks about how we're all woven together. Um, when we recognize that we're all interdependent and we infuse that recognition with compassion for the whole, that is not just compassion for ourselves or our families, the people we most care about, but actually for the system itself, um, that leads to the most positive outcomes. And that is the pathway forward. So talk a little bit about that just on a personal level. I mentioned it a moment ago, but you describe yourself as both a Jewish person and a Buddhist, and those two philosophies are throughout your book. So kind of integrate them a little bit for me, particularly with the comments that you just made. So I'm going to add a third one, which is science. So first of all, um, I was raised in a Jewish family, and one of the wonderful uh, concepts of Judaism is the idea of tikkun olam, that is our responsibility to repair the fabric of the world. And in fact, that's part of the mission of my company. Um, I do want to note, by the way, I think the fabric of the world was doing just great before humans came along and messed it up. And so <laughs> we are, in fact, repairing our own our own mess. And then the second thing is that Buddhism has a fantastic understanding of the nature of mind uh, and a understanding of the nature of the compassionate mind. So I view these two really as almost like thought and action that, that Buddhism has really, I think, has a very elegant theory of compassion. And Judaism through mitzvah has a really wonderful cultural practice of putting compassion into action. And then the third one, which I'm going to say is science, is I've learned in, in particularly in the research for this book, an enormous amount of social science and ecological science and systems theory, which all are completely in alignment with both Buddhism and the repairing of the fabric of the world. So I, and what I really see is that the world's faith and ethical traditions and the world's scientific knowledge which a century ago were thought to be going in different directions, are now beginning to cohere. And that coherence is really informative and inspirational. Interesting. You know, it's, it's funny. I bounce back and forth between a sunny view of the world and a totally dystopian view of the world. And in some ways, reading your book 
takes me in both of those directions equally because the complexity and the the need for all these things to happen at the same time feels almost impossible. Um, particularly given the political discourse and the behavior of how our our country t- seems to work, but as well as other com- countries and greed and confusion and like that. And I go in both directions. So h- how do you? How do you? So we have a choice. So, so we have a choice. And um, I can paint a very dystopian view of the world. And in fact, the book covers uh, the collapses that have happened throughout history. And the conditions for collapse are very present now. So we have seen whenever there's dramatic population growth, when there's a systemic climate change, when people are living beyond their resources, and this is combined with um, great income inequality, the climate changes and there becomes a shortage of resources, could be water, could be food, the civilizations that have enormous inequality collapse. And the reason they collapse is that ultimately the wealthy are taking far bigger share than, than their fair share and the poor revolt. And we can tell that because those civilizations often end in, in, by being burnt or in destruction. Mm-hmm. You can see all those conditions present today. But what is also absolutely clear is the only pathway through is to have a positive and generative whole systems state of mind. So that state of mind, which by its very nature comes with both realism, but must have optimism because you must be working to make something better. You have to have the motivation to be working for something better. So it has to have an optimistic, a realistic but optimistic motivation embedded in it is the necessary cure. So we cannot wallow in despair or we will create despair. We must Rise we, above. <laughs> we, we we have to Float commit up. ourselves. We we have to commit ourselves to a vision of what the better the 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 world is a better place looks like. And I want to talk about vision in a minute, and then work to realize it. Cities have become so you know over the last ten twenty years, cities have come back in a huge way, and mm-hmm. I think that's the place that our industry gets to play in and make a difference. Yes. And um, cities are really the scale at which, number one, we ULI members can make a difference. Many other people can make a difference. And in general, they're a scale in which a difference can be made. And the other exciting thing is that cities are network weaving and sharing best practices ideas. So I think they're a landscape of enormous opportunity for us. Absolutely true. So talk about that for a second. You know, we love cities. They're Wonderful. They've grown in great ways. What when you go to a city, what what city, if you had to pick one or two, kind of makes your heart sing right now? Uh, well, there are pieces of of all kinds of cities. Uh I write in the book about Louisville. Louisville is an amazing city. Uh what I write about is that in nineteen seventy when school busing orders came about and uh, we saw a vast white flight out of cities, uh Louisville combined its city and county school systems so you could there was no place to escape to and therefore everybody recognized they're all in it together this view of recognizing we're all in it together is so essential for uh-huh. transformation and as a result they built a fantastic school system that served city and county it was so successful they recently merged the city and county governments 
all their governments. I visited on the book tour, and they have now taken over um, something called the Compassionate Schools Program, which in part grew out of work from that the Garrison Institute did earlier. Um, uh, so that for me is very inspirational. Oklahoma City has done really amazing work in rebuilding its downtown and weaving it back together, all publicly funded through bond issues. We think of places like Oklahoma as, as don't increase my taxes, but communities, but in fact, people are, have been proven time and time again to be willing to pay more for good things that are happening. Um, uh, Singapore, for me, is really the best example of superb long-range planning that integrates housing and health and savings and jobs and transit and parks and open space, biodiversity, uh, water independence, all those things together in a really effective way. Um, European, there are many European cities. I could go on and on. You know, what's interesting is almost every city has something really interesting going on that I um, am attracted to. The topics of conversation for you are uncommon in our industry and uncommon in the world. And I'm wondering, as you and you come from a special place and you come from a privileged place to be the third generation of a successful real estate family. You feel the sense of stewardship that comes with that, and you've displayed it through our whole conversation. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on how people in our industry look more deeply at that opportunity or even that obligation. Uh, I find our industry to be an incredibly responsible industry. And in fact, the members of ULI particularly, and as I said, mm -hmm. our company is not alone. We really feel like we're part of a larger community of colleagues on both the for-profit and the not-for-profit side. Uh, I see so many real estate companies through ULI that are committed uh, to making their communities a better place. Uh, remember, I mentioned that my, a lot of my book tour, um, I spoke at ULI district councils, and at every one, first of all, I've gotten large crowds who've come to see me, which I'm very grateful for, but it's a reflection that uh, the, uh, my colleagues in the real estate business and in many, you know, not only a bunch of, only a few of them were doing affordable housing. Colleagues in, in ULI and in the real estate business who are involved in all different aspects of real estate planning, development, design in their cities are also deeply interested and in, involved in making their cities a better place. I think that's it. It's interesting. You don't have to be involved with affordable housing to understand that higher calling of what it is that we do in this industry. Yes. So there's many, many places to make a difference. You're making it at the edge of an area that that is so, so important. But as the industry raises the bar across the board, uh, that's how we create those great cities that we're talking about. And um Remember I said earlier the idea of collective efficacy, and it's something that we um, we need the systems, the networks to allow us to act effectively, collectively together. And I really salute you alive for being such a system. We hope you enjoyed this installment of the Leading Voices with ULI podcast, hosted by the Urban Land Institute. To learn more about ULI's leadership network or to join ULI as a member, please visit uli.org.